Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, this one might be a little bit different. Uh, you know, we always talk about growing a business in the USA, but in order to do so, I think you have to understand what's happening in the world. And we have an expert here when it comes to China. Uh, I believe it's still the second largest economy in the world. So uh, it's an honor to have Dinny McMahon. He wrote a book called China's Great Wall of Debt, Shadow Banks, Ghost Cities, Massive Loans, and the End of the Chinese Miracle. Dinny McMahon, thank you so much for being here, dude. No worries, Mike. It's great to be here. So let's start off with uh, the genesis of the book. What made you write this? Um, it, this did come out in 2018. The world has completely shifted since then. Maybe a lot of updates are uh, needed for the book. Maybe not. So why did you write it? So my story was I'd, I'd been, I started learning Chinese when, when I was uh, in primary school. So I, I spent sort of, you know, my high school years sort of uh, trying to learn the language. And I, when I finished, I went and studied in China for a couple of years to kind of get my language skills up. And then my first full-time job was as a financial journalist in China. So I spent 10 years uh, writing about China's economy. Uh, first, I spent four years in Shanghai writing for Dow Jones Newswires. My focus then was writing about the currency, but also about China's stock markets and bond markets. And then from there, I moved to Beijing, where I wrote for the Wall Street Journal for six years, writing about China's but as, as, as the Wall Street Journal's, Journal's banking and finance correspondent. And those six years were from the end of uh, 2009 to more or less mid-2015. And that period in particular was fascinating because it was uh, you know, kind of a – China was sort of dealing with the fallout of the global financial crisis. So everyone knows the global financial crisis hit in 2008. China sailed through it in a way that the rest of the world just did not because the government you know pumped a huge amount of of money into the economy and the chinese economy just went from strength to strength but then i came on board with the paper a year after that you know initial injection of cash into the economy and what i saw saw happening was something completely different i saw a financial system that was completely running amok I saw a government that had effectively lost control of the financial innovation that was being pushed by its banks and shadow banks, not unlike what had happened in the United States, you know, in the early part of the 2000s. I saw a, a, a property sector that was out of control, local governments borrowing money hand over fist, and yet the headline growth figure just kept going up and up. The way that the rest of the world saw China was that this economy was going gangbusters. So I was in this kind of strange world where I could just see the the, the fragilities and the contradictions in this economy and financial system just mounting and mounting. But what everyone else saw was kind of the inevitable economy. China was number two, but it would inevitably become the world's largest economy. It would inevitably take over from the United States. It was kind of history was already written and we could see the trajectory China was on and, you know, the, the future was bright and depending on where you were standing, it was scary. But where I was, I was seeing something very different. So when I, you know, left the, 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 the Wall Street Journal in mid-2015, I had the opportunity to write the book. And as much as anything, this was an exercise in catharsis because, you know, 20 years ago, right, if you were a, a foreign correspondent, you could write 
10,000 words for a newspaper, travel off to the countryside, write, write, write your, you know, magnum opus. Newspapers haven't worked like that for a long time. So you do all this great reporting, working out what's going on, and then you get to write maybe 1,200, 1,500 words. So I had all this great material in my notebooks, and I got to spend a couple of years pulling together all the strands to properly understand what was going on. So that's really how the book book came together. It was, you know, finally having the time to work out and properly understood everything I'd been looking at for the previous decade. Well, if you could kind of summarize for our viewers and listeners how they became this superpower, um, because when I think of China back in what, 70s and 80s and maybe 90s, they were just known as a manufacturing company, right? You would buy cheap goods, commodities almost maybe and they would ship them. And then all of a sudden, something happened where it did become this massive economy. Was it leadership? Did the government do something different? Or is it simply because they became the go-to source for products and uh, uh, gadgets for all over the world? What happened? You know, what you just described then is part of it. But in some ways, there are two stories here. One, there is foreign investment came in and Chinese labor was cheap and Chinese land was cheap and everything was cheap. And it just made China the cheapest place to make pretty much everything, whether it be clothes, started off as clothes and shoes and toys, and then it became electronic gadgets. And, you know, the local governments in China were just so pro-business, right? You come in, they bend over backwards to help you just get your factory up and, and running. And so that was part of the story, right? Um, it certainly helped that China's period, this sort of 40 years that you were talking about, has very much kind of lined up with peak globalization, right? Mm-hmm. You know, China really started becoming the economic power it is as the US and EU really sort of embraced globali- globalization. It rode that wave like nobody else. And so, yeah, we, we had a bunch of that happening in the 90s. China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. That supercharged that trend. But that's kind of the side of the Chinese economy that we on the outside see most clearly, right? Because we see it on the Made in China tags of, you know, at least for a period, almost everything that we were buying. But There's another side of the equation which really has been a a greater contributor to growth over the last 25 years than that export story, and that is housing and it is infrastructure construction. So in the up until I think it was about 1997, there was no commercial housing market in China. Right, If you wanted to go out and buy a house, you, you couldn't do it. Housing was provided by your employer. It was kind of everything that you understood, you would understand of a, you know, of a communist-led, uh, you know, state-controlled economy. Housing was provided by the state. And, you know, usually it was through, the, if you were in a city, it was through the government agency you worked for or for the state-owned firm that employed you. Uh, and so what happened in the, you know, what that meant is that there just wasn't enough housing. And the housing that did exist was of really poor quality. And when I say there wasn't enough housing, well, the population was expanding because of this, you know, boom in manufacturing. You had a lot of people moving from the countryside to sit the cities to take up factory jobs. So the cities just didn't have enough housing. And what did exist was cramped, you know, a lot of people with 
you know, living in effective, a lot of families living in dormitory conditions with shared bathrooms, communal kitchens. You'd often find in like a, a you know, a, a government compound, you'd have demountables or even tents in like the front yard to house additional people. It, it was an, an absolute mess. And so in about 1997, the government pretty much opened up a commercial housing market. You know, it gave people the homes that they were living in. So if, if they were living in something that was previously state-owned, well, that was now yours if, if you could, you know, pay a little bit of money for it. Um, and so from there, you kind of, then you had developers would sort of come in. It's like, okay, well, people have a little bit of money and they can now afford to buy housing, so let's start building. And that was the start of what is a, was effectively a 25-year housing boom. Um, and so the, the thing to keep in mind, right, is that, you know, in the United States, in a, in, in a boom, in a, in, a, in a sort of a boom year, maybe 20% of all housing sales in a year would be of newly constructed housing. M most of us, when we buy a home, we're buying a home from somebody else, right? It is a home that's been around for 15, 20, 30 years, right? In China, that's not the case, and it hasn't been the case really ever. Something like up until a couple of years ago, 90% of all housing sales in any given year have been of newly constructed homes because of this, you know, people moving, population growth, people moving from the countryside to the city in huge numbers, people upgrading, people trying to get out of their small accommodation. There's just been this constant demand for quality housing. And when you're in that situation with a country of 1.4 billion people, that has been an incredible driver of economic growth. Just the sheer need to build new homes year in, year out, has driven this economic miracle. Um, and the thing to keep in mind here, it's, you know, economists have estimated that typically, up until at least a few years ago at least, that 30% of all economic activity in any given year was related to the housing market. So that's not just the construction of the housing. It is people, it's the steel that's needed. It is the, the aluminum and copper. It is, uh, you know, the, the transportation services, whether it's shipping iron ore from overseas. It is the iron ore smelters. It is the extra power plants needed to power the iron ore cells. It's just created this whole supporting industry. The sheer need to build housing has just supported this broader industrial base. Now, of course, part of parcel of this as well is the need for additional infrastructure because you're building new cities, you're expanding them rapidly. You need everything that comes with it, not just the schools and the and and the and the hospitals, but the highways and the railroads and the airports. And as China got richer, the quality of this stuff got better, and so you ended up with this high speed rail network, which was so important because the traditional old railway network was being monopolized by freight. So people couldn't get anywhere except incredibly slowly. So you needed a new railway network. So they built high-speed rail. So you had, you know, going parallel with all this new housing construction was the construction of all this new infrastructure. And that is the economic growth story of the of the past 25 years that I think people outside of China, it's often lost on them because we see the export machine and we're like, wow, that must be the thing that's driving the economy. But inside of China, it's this sheer volume of construction, which is going gangbusters for 25 years, that has been at the very centre of the economic growth machine. Hmm. One thing that caught my attention on this uh, cover slash title is ghost cities. Now, I'm, I'm very familiar with zombie companies, but I'm not familiar with ghost cities. 
What do you mean by this? I can only assume that it means cities that has nobody living in them, but people come to work. That may be wrong, but what what are ghost cities? Yeah, you're not too far wrong. So, you know, if, if you kind of take the idea of a ghost town, so the US has ghost towns all over the place, right? So it's, you know, you may have had a town that was built during a gold rush. Yep. You know, That's what I kept thinking of at the beginning, but I was like, China doesn't have those, do they? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, you, you find these things around the world. The, the Soviet Union had a bunch of these things as well, big industrial towns, and then the, the demand for whatever they were producing ran out and the towns were empty. Gold rush towns. The gold ran out, the town was empty. China kind of took that concept and turned it on its head, right? So rather than having an economic reason for why people would descend on a location, the Chinese did it in a way that like, okay, we're going to build the city first and then we're going to create the jobs and the economic viability of the place after all. Um, And it's funny because understanding the ghost cities kind of helps you understand some of the fatal flaws in that whole construction model of growth I just explained to you. So ghost cities in China are freestanding cities that you drive into them, they look like cities. They've got rows and rows of apartment buildings. They have a downtown area. Usually there's a big open square in the middle. There's government buildings. Maybe there's a few high-rise office towers. Some of these things are the most beautiful towns that you've ever seen. I mean, fantastic landscaping, a lot of money, a lot of you know uh, effort has gone into making these things livable. Um, but they are empty. Now, when we say empty, it's it not entirely empty because, you know, the authorities have kind of done things to to create jobs there. So, for example, a lot of uh, ghost cities, they're kind of twin cities. You have an existing city and then on the outskirts or maybe 40-minute drive away, you have a new city built from scratch. And so all the government offices and buildings that were in this original city, they get shut down and move to the new city. Or you might have a bunch of schools get shut down and move to the new city. So you have these kind of ways to seed the population. But at the end of the day, no one actually wants to live there. And the sort of jobs that are there are are state jobs. They're not necessarily, there's no kind of economic vitality to the place. So to understand why these things exist in the first place, you kind of have to understand a little bit about the political economy of China. And what I mean by that is that I think, again, as foreigners, we look at China and we, we superimpose upon how China works, our understanding of how the Soviet Union worked, right? You know, a top-down statist, everything's controlled by the Kremlin with an iron fist. China's a little bit different because the provincial governments and then below them the mayors and below them the county, county mayors, every level of government actually has quite a degree of autonomy to sort of run the place as they like. Wow. And so... Um, and on top of that, every one of them has very has responsibilities. And the one responsibility that they all had, every level, county, city mayor, provincial governor, what they all had for the longest time, it's not so important anymore, but for decades, it was economic growth. You have to drive the economy of the area that you're responsible for quickly. And if you did that, you would be promoted. So, you know, 
you know, if you're talking about a city mayor, for example, they're usually in that role for five years. That's their formal period of time, five years. But more often than not, they get moved onwards and upwards after about three years. So they have three years to make their mark, and the mark they have to make is rapid economic growth. Wow. So, so how do you do Right. You, you're not going to be able in three years, you can't kind of come in, get the lay of the land, understand the business community, kind of you know, work out in a really unique way how to stimulate the growth of, of a local economy. But the one thing you can do is build stuff. Right. As long as stuff is getting built, that generates economic activity. So what they do is they're like, OK, well, first we need land. So. Inland, in China, no one owns the land. No, no individual, no company owns land. Everything is owned by the state. So the local authorities go to the periphery of the city and they kick the farmers off their land. For a long time, they barely compensated them. These days, they get better compensation. But they pay the pay off the farmers for their land. They take that land. They and then they level it. They put in basic infrastructure. Of course, the question is where they get the money. Well, well they borrow it. They, local governments borrow it from the banks, they raise them, you know, and then they use that money to create land that can then be sold. And so what happens then is you've got, they go to the developers. It's like, hey, we've got all this land. We'd love you to buy the land and build housing. And the, house, the developers are like, well, what, there's nothing out there. So what the local governments then do is not only do they build infrastructure, but they'll build schools and hospitals. They'll build, maybe they'll build a new government building out there. Maybe they will uh, lobby the provincial government for a uh, a spur to a high-speed rail line, and that's where they'll put the high-speed rail, uh, rail line. They'll do a whole lot of stuff to build additional infrastructure, thereby creating new value for the land that they've just taken away from the farmers. And then they will sell that land to developers. Wow. And then the developers will come in and and you know and, and build on it, and so this is kind of the the model of growth because the local governments, you know, they need to borrow money to make all this happen, but then they pay down those loans by selling the land to developers, and then the next mayor comes in and has to repeat the cycle again after three years. It's like, well, how am I going to you know? drive the economy well let's expand the city again we're going to you know flatten more land build more buildings we've got to build more uh, more borrow more money from that and then we'll sell the land to try and pay down the debt and then it's it just rolls on year after year after year and ghost cities are that model of growth writ large it is a mayor coming in and go, saying rather than doing this incrementally we are just going to build an entirely new city and you know why we're going to do that is because the sheer wave of Internal migration flows are huge. The, the, the hundreds of millions of people are moving from the countryside to the cities. We are going to build a new city so that we can accommodate those migration flows. So they go out, they take the land, they build an ornamental lake. You know, they build a high-speed rail line. They build, uh, you know, public tennis courts, new government buildings, and then they sell the land to the developers and you end up with... This, this sort of you know ghost city. Um, now, there's a few things to keep in mind with this. This vision of urbanization is is one that's true. I mean, China's cities have expanded massively. Um, you know, I think it was only 20 years ago the rate of urbanization was only about 20 percent. Now, something like 66 percent of all people live in, in in cities in China. So you literally have had hundreds of millions of people moving from the countryside to Chinese cities. Um, but 
they only move to places where there are jobs. <laughs> so if you're building a ghost city, there's no jobs there. Local governments can do whatever they can to kind of create incentives to pull in an automaker or auto parts maker or something else to kind of go there, you know, give them free land, give them tax incentives. But the thing is, every city in China is offering exactly the same incentives. There's no real, you know, nothing they can really do, you know, do differently. So firms really have had the the pick of where they can move in terms of government incentives. And so, you know, for a relatively small city to build a twin, the potential for it to become a ghost city is incredibly high. Now, the last thing to keep in mind is that we always have this vision of like, wow, these ghost cities must have created an incredible amount of debt. They've created debt for local governments, but they didn't create debt for the developers because you walk into these things and you see these rows of apartments and you don't see many people and they all look empty. And at nighttime, the lights don't go on. You're like, they must be unsold. The reality is, reality is in most cases, all those apartments are sold because you've had this 20, 25-year housing boom. The place that Chinese people put their savings is in the property market, right? No one trusts the stock market. They see it as a casino. You can't move your money readily overseas to invest in, you know, US equity markets or anywhere anywhere else. The place people save money is housing. So people, so often in these ghost cities, all the apartments are sold because people have been bought them in investment products. So the debt problems lie with the local governments. The developers typically have come away in front and then you've got a whole lot of people who are holding an investment asset, which chances are they'll never be able to sell. Wow. So you're starting to kind of get an idea of kind of some of the tensions. When you have that model replicated in some form or another throughout the entire country, you, you start to kind of get a few problems. So that does tie into a zombie company. A zombie company is something that is uh, not self-sufficient, not self-reliant. It always needs outside money, investors to keep it going. So what you're saying is that this model eventually will hit a brick wall. And and that's what you're talking about um, whenever you refer to the Chinese miracle disappearing, right? Yeah. So the, the way that I see it is the, the Chinese miracle ended years ago because the only thing keeping it afloat was what you just described. It was more and more debt. And, you know, it stayed afloat for years while the system kept pumping more debt into it. But now it's starting to unravel. Uh, in 2020, the government turned around and said, okay, the developers are over leveraged. They're, you know, they're borrowing way too much. Housing, demand, new demand for housing is starting to peter out. It's unsustainable. We're going to force the developers to delever. And that's what they did. And now, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences. The authorities thought they could manage a kind of a slow deflation of the market. And instead, you know, people, you know, the, 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 the market is kind of, you know, to, to call it a crash is difficult because, um, you know, actually being able to know exactly where market prices are at the moment is quite difficult because the Chinese government controls like it's a market but you know there are you know so to give you an idea of exactly what I'm talking about is if a developer is selling a, a a project they'll sell it in sort of phases and uh you know it may have sold you know uh, uh housing in the development at a hundred dollars 
you know, a unit at $100, say, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, and now the developer is trying to sell the rest of it, but no one's buying. So the obvious thing would be cut the price to $90 or $80 or $70. The local governments won't let them do that because the moment they do that, then the people who paid $100 start literally protesting. You very seldom see protests on the street in China. The one time you will consistently do it is when um, homeowners see the value of their homes decline. Mm -hmm. And so the developers aren't typically allowed to sell more. At, at, they'd probably be allowed to sell at 90, but to get approval to sell at 80, let alone at $70, is in incredibly you know, unlikely. So to actually get a sense at the moment of where the market price is for Chinese housing at the moment is incredibly difficult because you kind of have these, you know, government fiat, these sort of rules which kind of like, you know, prevent the market from kind of finding a natural e equilibrium. But the long and the short of it is that housing demand has absolutely fallen off a cliff in the last couple of years. You know, from being just prices just going up in one direction, people are not buying anymore. And there's a, a lot of reasons for it. One, they're expecting prices, prices to keep falling. Another reason is demographics. You know, the Chinese population peaked either this year or last year. Over the next decade, the Chinese population is likely to shrink by 100 million people, oh which then implies God. that... 10% that, basically? That's... What is it, 8% somewhere in there? Yep, that's the ballpark. By the end of the century, it could conceivably fall by half. Um, this is all the fallout from the one-child policy introduced at the end of the, uh, end of the 70s. So in an environment where... People aren't moving from the countryside anymore. That whole migration wave is over. If you go to the countryside in China at the moment, typically what you see are retirees taking care of kids. Anybody of working age is already in, in the cities. The only migrants, the only wave of migration you're going to get from the countryside to the city in the future will be those kids finishing school and moving to the cities. That is the future wave. So it's not like anything we've seen in the past. Um, secondly, you've got this declining population. Thirdly, you have a rapidly aging population. And so the, 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 the rate of formation of new households is slowing aggressively. So the actual demand for new commercial housing just isn't going to be there in the way that it used to be. And on top of that, one of the things that was kind of keeping the property market afloat for so long is people were invi buying investment properties. Now, in any other market, that wouldn't matter. You buy an investment property, you put renters into it. You know, that's not how it works in China. Um, the value of commercial housing was was very much targeted at an at a middle class, right? But the sort of people who needed housing were the migrant workers who were coming in from the countryside, those tens of millions of people every year. And they were at an income bracket, which was completely, you know, just massively lower from the value of commercial housing, which means firstly, they would never be able to afford it. But it also means that if you owned commercial housing and wanted to rent it out, the a reason that the, the migrant workers would not be able to pay anything that looked like a reasonable rental yield. So most people decided that you're better off rather than kind of just accepting the, the pennies relative to the, the value of the home of what you paid for it, accepting the pennies in rent from whoever wanted it and you know was you know could afford it. They said, look, I'm not going to rent it out. I'm just going to hold it and realize the capital gains. So no one really knows for sure 
what percentage of China's housing stock is empty and is being held as investment properties. However, there was a survey done by the uh, a, a university in Chengdu in 2018, um, the, the Southwestern University of Finance and Economics, and they've done this survey uh, twice prior. And what they found is in 2018 is that 22% of China's housing stock was empty. And we assume that most of that is people holding investment properties and not renting it out. So assuming for the last however many years up until, you know, the the the, the air came out of the, the, the housing bubble, that a big chunk of what people, of new housing sales every year were investment properties that weren't being rented out, it makes no sense anymore given the changing population demographics to buy an investment property in most parts of China because you'll never be able to sell it because the population is shrinking and it's getting old. So given all those dynamics, the housing market, if this was the peak of sales in 2019, when it comes through this readjustment or whatever we're seeing at the moment, the total amount of new sales year on year in the future will be a fraction of what it was prior to its peak. And that will be the new equilibrium. What you're saying so, makes a lot of sense with uh, what, what I experienced. Um, I sold my house in 2020, right at the end of it. Obviously, we were going through a major boom here in the USA. So maybe they saw a decline and therefore money's being transferred over to the US to buy properties here because I asked my real estate agent, you know, one of the first um, offers that I got was from this family, obviously had ties to China. And uh, I was like, this is weird. It was cash offer right out of the gate, sight unseen. Let's just do this. And I was like, is this normal? He goes, I've been seeing this more and more. It's becoming very yeah. common here. So is that uh, what's happening? Absolutely, un unequivocally. You know, as I said, this property is the asset class that uh, the Chinese population is more comfortable investing in in anything in the, in the world. What has happened over the last few years is, firstly, what the, the, the air is coming out, not only coming out of the of the housing market, but there's a realization that it will never be what it used to be. That when it's that the new equilibrium is going to be a lot lower. The other thing that's happened is that people us whether to, to say that they've lost faith in the Chinese government, lost faith in Xi Jinping might be a bit of a stretch, but it's not far off because the way that uh, that the, the the Chinese Communist Party managed COVID left a lot of people disillusioned in China. For the first few couple of years, there was a widespread, it's like, oh, wow, we've, we've handled this incredibly well. 2020, 2021, when we were all trying to work out whether we should be wearing masks and disinfect our fruit and all that sort of stuff, and our kids were at home and we were all trying to work out how to put kids to school on Zoom, the Chinese, for the most part, had normal lives. And then came 2022 and you had lockdowns that were far more severe than anything we experienced in the United States. Yeah, it was. It we was don't hear about this stuff, right? That it's it's pretty much covered up over here, I guess, maybe. I don't know. It, it was hard to report on, right? When you lock down an entire city and more or less you stop people traveling between cities. Like, firstly, when I was with the Wall Street Journal, we had a huge bureau. We probably had about 10 active reporters just trying to get our heads about what's happening in China. Then a few years after I left, uh, China kicked out all the American journalists 
and I'm Australian. They kicked out all the Australian journalists. For a period of time, I, I think it's still the case, the Wall Street Journal's bureau in Beijing is Canadians and Brits, you know, and it is a fraction of the size that it used to be. And so you have fewer foreign reporters and then... Uh, you, you and you'll find you you read any of the, the 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 newspapers that cover China. You'll find a lot more of the the datelines are written from Hong Kong and Singapore. Journalists outside of China these days because there are just fewer bodies inside of China, and it's harder to move around. You know, even without COVID, just politically, they've made it more difficult to re- report on China. Um, so yeah, people started to lose faith, and so what you'll find is that people investing in property in in the United States. One, it's because it's an asset class they're familiar with. Two, they don't, they've lost faith in the Chinese property market. And three, the thing that the United States has, which China doesn't have, you have is rule of law. So they're looking for a political hedge as much as anything. They want somewhere they can be fairly sure that their assets will be safe. Even if the price of the asset goes like this, at least they're not exposed to the political risk of the Chinese government acting in ways that completely are at odds with anyone's anyone's expectations, which exactly is what the lockdowns were. Nobody saw them coming. No one expected the severity. And a lot of people were left quite disillusioned. Outside of real estate and potentially just the fact that they don't have many regulations, which keeps their labor costs low, which allows them to do a lot more, um, I guess you could say with less, uh, that affects the USA. What else should the USA um, citizens be worried about? Is it um, in regards to BRICS? Because that's coming down the pike with everything that's happening with inflation, the printing of the dollar affecting us day by day. Um, I think BRICS is going to be a, a phrase we're going to hear more and more in the future. So um, what are you worried about and what should we what should we be concerned about in the future? So with the, I think I'm less worried about the BRICS uh, than you are, um, you know, because you kind of put Russia and China and Brazil and India in, in the same room and they really have nothing in common. Um, you know, particularly, particularly you put China and India in the same room and they have they have a lot of issues. I mean, you talk about United States you know, having issues with China. I mean, India shares a border with China, um, you know, every you know, they're, they're, they've kind of got a, a militarized line of control uh, up in the um, Himalayas. I mean, India is part of the Quad, which is uh, Japan, the United States, Australia, and India, uh, you know, effectively a grouping which is trying to work out how to deal with uh, for, you know, more assertive China in the region. So I think already you've kind of got some pretty severe contradictions already baked into the BRICS grouping, which I think will kind of make any sort of political decisions quite difficult. Um, as for, for the currency issues, it is, what I think you're right, though, in terms of the currency, one of the things that all of those countries have in, in common is that they feel too exposed to, to the US dollar. Right. The question is, what, they, what can they do about it, though? Um, you know, setting up a, a, a common currency, you know, given sort of the, the vast disparities between those four economies, the pace at which they grow, the, 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 the you know, some are industrial, some are, uh, some are, are focused on natural resources, some are, the economies are relatively closed, to kind of come up with a, a, a common monetary policy that would allow them to have a common currency um, is, is quite complex in and of itself. I mean, that said, the Chinese uh, already 
you know, one of their big goals at the moment is to try and push the internationalization of the renminbi to have other countries use the the yuan, the renminbi, sort of two words for the same currency. Um, they're trying to promote that sort of more and more, but they're having huge difficulties with that as well, uh, largely because, um, you know, regardless of all the problems with the dollar, the world still trusts the dollar more than they trust the Chinese currency, because even if China maintains about a, a stable monetary policy, which for the most part they've been quite good at doing, there is always hanging over that the what if, right? Mm. Because the Chinese government, the, the, the PBOC, the People's Bank of China, which is the Chinese central bank, is not independent. It doesn't make, it doesn't even pretend to be independent. The ultimate arbiter of monetary policy and economic policy and currency policy in China is the Chinese Communist Party. And even though it has a track record of stability for maybe a decade, hanging over that is always the expectation that that could change on a dime. So anyone using the renminbi instead of the dollar, there's always that question hanging in the background. Now, that said, China's trying to do some really interesting things with, uh, you know, it's trying to promote the renminbi through the international use of renminbi through cross-border e-commerce. That's a big part of it. Through uh, pricing of commodities, commodities futures markets, it kind of sees that as like, if if only we can start pricing commodities futures in renminbi, that can kind of be the sort of thing that can kind of start getting the rest of the world more comfortable with, with using the currency. But they've been trying this stuff for years and it's moving incredibly slowly. So I, I the, from just being a sort of a China watcher, you know, so that's the prism that I see all this stuff through. I see that the threat to the US dollar from China is minimal at the moment. Oh, that's that's refreshing to hear. You don't hear that too much, by the way. Yeah, people always are afraid. No, no, I appreciate that. I, I spent a year working on a project on China's rem, uh, China's efforts to make their currency international and i went into it with a very different perspective i thought okay let's let this this must be this is going to really move the 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 dial and then once i got into the weeds it just became clear that they are so far it will be so difficult for them to make inroads on this uh largely because they've been trying for years and it's just not making headway um but to kind of come back to the question that you, you sort of led with mike what are the things that sort of the us you know what americans need to kind of worry about I think the next thing is, right, so China realises it's got some really big economic challenges that it's facing at the moment. One is the demographic thing, ageing population, shrinking population. When your population is shrinking, it means that there are just fewer people to buy stuff. I mean, that's the great thing about the United States. US consumes, right, and like nobody else and there's always because of immigration the population's always rising it is the world's consumer china all of a sudden has never been the consumer it exports stuff it's a big exporter and the reason is because you know its households just can't absorb everything that it produces now that's going to get worse firstly because the population is shrinking and secondly because the population is aging Right. You know, you know, your kind of parents, once they, you know, they save aggressively in their last few years of of work, but once they retire, they just spend less money. And so that's happening in China as well. You're kind of hitting this period of peak retire or not peak retirees. It's going to go up and up and up for the next few decades. When they retire, they'll consume less. Secondly, the property market's not going to drive the economy anymore. So you need something else. 
so what's that something else? Well, one one theory is that, well, yeah, sure, there's going to be less Chinese people, but they, they don't consume as much as they should at the moment. How about, you know, we turn them into consumers? And Western economists have been arguing this for a long time. There are a lot of voices actually in China as well, Chinese economic advisors that are telling the government, look, the only way out of this thing is we need to give households more money, right? Improve the social safety net. People are paying too much for their health care. You have to improve the pensions. Uh, you know, people who move from the countryside to the city, if they want to access health care, they have to go back to the countryside. If their kids want an education, their kids have to come back, go back to the village that their parents are from. The entire system is really screwed up. But if you start introducing a more, you know, the, uh, better, more equitable access to public services, then people will have to save less. If they save less, they'll spend more, maybe, China could become the sort of consumer nation that the United States has been. It's a big maybe all on top of all of that, given one, that's not how the economy's been geared for the last 50 years, right? It's just that'd be a massive pivot. Secondly, you know, even while you're doing that, you've got the forces of demographics working against you. So even if individual households start spending more, there's just going to be fewer of them. So that's the the second thing going on. So what is Xi Jinping's vision for the Chinese economy? And this speaks directly to the economic challenge to the United States. Xi Jinping's vision of the economy is that he wants to force march the economy up the value-added chain. By what I mean, what I mean by that is he wants an economy led by innovation and by advanced manufacturing. And so they are throwing huge amounts of money at you know anybody who can innovate you know, in Pretty much, they've got a short list of industries that they're really interested in, whether it be AI, you know, aviation, renew, you know, renewable energy, electric vehicles, um, you know, advanced materials, just the whole thing. There's, it's, I say it's a short list, it's a long list, but they want Indigenous innovation. They want to create products that the rest of the world wants to buy and they want to hold the IP. And I think that is the threat. And we're seeing it most clearly at the moment with uh, the three areas where Chinese exports are going gangbusters at the moment. That's elect, uh, electric vehicles, yep. um, uh, solar components, and batteries. And batter- all of those areas. They're all China connected has- technically, right? I mean, that really, Absolutely. They- yep. It's 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 all the it's all the same thing, and they've pumped a huge amount of money in all of those industries. And China has local, you know, has its own IP. I mean, there's there's a reason that Ford teamed up with a Chinese battery producer and wanted to build a battery factory. I think what was it in Michigan? It's because the Chinese have the IP. They've put so much money into this, and so they're producing some of the best quality batteries in the world. So you know. And, and, and this is kind of the, the threat. So I think this year, China is taking over from Japan as being the world's largest exporter of automobiles. And the sort of automobiles that they're exporting are electric vehicles. And the amazing thing is some of these electric vehicles are awesome. I mean, it is not something that you traditionally have associated with China, like locally built local brand Chinese cars, even a few years ago, you'd be like, well, you know, it's, that's, it's, that's not my jam. But the quality of some of these things are absolutely fantastic. Um, and that, I think, is, is the threat, that China is, starts to export 
higher value added goods, which has traditionally been the domain of advanced manufacturing, advanced industrial economies like the United States, Europe, particularly sort of, you know, Germany, the, the Netherlands, the Nordics, um, you know, Japan, South Korea, that's the, the the ground that it's it's um it's it, it's encroaching on but the thing is you've got to remember that with all of these industries the reason china is excelling at them is because the authorities have thrown huge amounts of resources to one develop the ip and secondly to kind of develop them behind relatively protectionist walls right so you know other company countries haven't been able to uh, companies from other countries haven't been able to freely compete against china chinese firms in china while these industries sort of developed and i think the really something interesting is going on with in europe at the moment because you're not seeing a flood of evs from china into the united states and that's i think because uh because of 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 tariffs us tariffs on on chinese automobiles the eu is completely different you've had a wave of chinese evs coming into into europe and so the eu is kind of looking at um at sort of uh you know doing investigations on on dumping because you know these firms and these products have become so successful so quickly because of explicit state support this is not a a a a, a level playing field that we're talking about so i think this is the challenge of the future china producing more better quality goods that the rest of the world wants but the way that they achieved it kind of will come up you know you know sort of head to head um against the trade policies of countries that say hang on yeah we we love your product but we don't like how you achieved it yeah, I I think um it's China that's buying a ton of mining rights from Africa, right? They're mining all kinds of I think it's cobalt, but it's all kinds of things for batteries. And I believe the Americans are becoming very reliant on China to produce those batteries, which the moment China has any type of control over our energy, you have to be a little bit scared. So that's what I see too, 100%. Um Yep. You were part of the Wall Street Journal for years, it sounds like, right? Did you leave there? Do you still work for them part-time? Uh, what made you go off and, and join this company? I want to mention it, TriviumChina.com. So tell us about Trivium, your journey. What Trivium made you China. Okay. So, you know, it, it, so when we were living in Beijing and I was writing for, the, for WSJ, I clearly was a journalist and my wife was running an environmental NGO. And uh, there were a couple of things that kind of made us leave. One is my wife got pregnant and we were, this was a time in Beijing where the air quality was literally toxic. I mean, that's not, that's not hyperbole. <laughs> that is literally toxic. Uh, <laughs> there were schools in Beijing, uh, private international schools that were putting domes over their playing fields, like effectively bringing their outdoor playing fields indoors so they could purify the air. Um, and so we always said that when we started a family, we, we'd get the hell out. So my when my wife got pregnant, we, we moved to the States. Um, and the other thing was, as I said, I was a journalist. She was running an environmental NGO and life was kind of getting progressively more difficult for both of those, you know, both of those professions. It was getting harder to be a journalist in China. And for the NGO space, I think it was the year before that we left, uh, the government uh, put all foreign NGOs that they were being regulated 
by the police, right? So the regulatory agency in charge of overseeing foreign NGOs was the police, which kind of spoke volumes about how the government saw the involvement of sort of foreign NGOs. And so it just was like, this This is just getting harder and we're starting a family. So that's when we got out. And I left journalism because as much as I love writing, what I really loved was trying to understand what was happening in China. Like, as I said, I started learning Chinese in elementary school and I'd spent years learning the language and trying to understand the place coming to the States and pivoting to write about the pharmaceutical industry or private equity or something like that just didn't interest me as much. So I've, I've kind of stayed in this space trying to work out kind of what happens next in China. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, it seems like you're really into this and, uh, it definitely shines through. If you guys go to his book on Amazon, 525 reviews as a publisher and a guy who markets books, I will tell you guys that is very hard to get. So people are resonating with his message. Uh, one question we always ask our guests, Danny, I always, I, I want to call you Danny and I apologize for that. Danny, no, that's okay. It's an unusual name. <laughs> Danny, uh, a book that maybe got you to fall in love with reading or writing or a defining moment in your life that was, um, basically built around a book. For example, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read that when I was 23. It changed my life forever. Is there anything like that for you that you recommend to our listeners or viewers? doesn't have to be about um, reading or writing, but maybe just got you to fall in love with your path that you're on. Okay. Look, I, I, if you don't mind, I'd make two recommendations because there is one book which uh, is uh for me is still like a one of the best books on china that i've come across it's a few years old now it's actually written by another australian he used to write for the financial times in in china and it's called the party um as i said it's a little bit dated now not by much but it's just trying to understand how the the chinese communist party works its relationship to the people the economy it is just, it's absolutely eye-opening. So even to this day, I, I'd sort of say that's, you know, in, in terms of kind of seeing what you could, you know, how you could kind of write about China in a contemporary way. Um, for me, that was, that's always been my my gold standard is, is the party. In terms of, and this other one, in terms of make that, one of the books that I always go back to every few years and I've always found, uh, helps me oddly enough with uh, perspective something it, it's a really odd recommendation because it's a work of fiction and it's a uh, graphic novel at that there's a book called the watchman um which is a graphic novel strain you know it's it, it, it's not a great you know it's not necessarily a work of literature but one of the reasons i go back to it every few years as that is that it helps me with perspective that the way that i necessarily am looking at the world isn't necessarily the way that it is. And I always kind of felt that approach was absolutely essential when it came to trying to work out what was happening in China, because there's always that, that sort of the, the sort of the, the looking at China, there is kind of the, the world or the way that the Chinese communist party sort of presents it. It's the way that the Chinese media presents it. It's even the way that there's a way that we kind of look at it from, a, from afar, but you kind of need to look under the hood and to understand the mechanics of how the system works to really understand what's going on. Um, and for me, The Watchman has always been that the kind of book that helps me reset to kind of go, okay, you know, 
there, there's always levels to to sort of uh, what you're seeing. And if you actually really want to, you know, do a proper job in terms of research, then you kind of have to get down in the weeds. You've been all over the world. Uh, you started off in Australia. You went to China for many years, and now you are in Chicago. You've seen basically three different economies. I am a major capitalist. I believe that's the way to freedom. You've seen a couple other ones out there. What do you classify yourself as, or which direction would you recommend the com- the country to go in? In the United States? Yeah. What would you? Where do you lean? I I would assume there's some good and bad in many places that you've been in, but. Uh, um, maybe you have a perspective that I have not heard on this podcast yet. That's that's interesting. No, no one asks me that question, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people always ask me, "Hey, before I get on this podcast, can you give me a script of questions you're going to ask?" I'm like, I don't even know which questions I'm going to ask, but <laughs> you're very well educated. I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Then, for me. <sighs> When I look at the United States and I think about the direction it goes in, oddly enough, it's it's not an economic issue. You know, one of one of the great things about the US, more than anywhere else, is its ability to reinvent itself generation by generation to kind of maintain its democracy and adapt to the times. And it's it's been doing that for generations, you know, better than any anyone else in the world. For, for me, uh, when I look at the US, the thing that worries me is this, you know, the state of the uh, you know, democracy. And what I mean by that isn't kind of the, the two sides of politics arguing about it, but it's it's the institutions of the democracy. It's it's the role of money in, in you know that plays in you know in, in, in electing officials. It's 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 kind of oh sorry. As I said, Mike, so seldom people ask me this. People never ask me this question. So for me, it's it's about the thing that I would hope the US can do is to kind of ref, kind of to a place where democratic institutions work more effectively. They're more representative. That it can kind of you know keep on keeping on. But you know that's kind of that's the the sort of thing that sort of hits me as a as an outsider as opposed to you know left right or you know what what, what you know what direction the economy should be moving in yeah i, I so that was to... an absolutely <laughs> lousy art yeah, lousy uh, you know answer kind of, sort of are you a politician now denny what happened to you you just turned into a politician uh, on that last question uh, just so no, you know no. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where you kind of like, you know, you, you sort of musing over your muesli first thing in the morning and you're kind of like, oh, you know, if only the world was a better place, but you never kind of have to articulate it until somebody asks <laughs> last question on a podcast. Well, people so, classify USA as a capitalistic society. Well, it's really a mixed economy. Uh, you go to some places, it's very capitalistic. You go to some others, it's very socialistic. So, uh, so when I look at Australia, that's socialism to me. I look at Canada, that's socialism. I look at America, we still have a little bit of capitalism in there. And and that's the I think that's the reason why people come to this country is for that, right? And the bigger it gets, the bigger you rely on government, the more that goes away and the identity disappears. But I think that capitalistic nature is what drives this country. That's my belief. And uh, hopefully you share that sentiment. Um, and I think maybe you did, maybe you didn't. I didn't really understand your answer, but <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's right. 
If, look, if you can get rid of that answer, I'm like, I'm sitting back here now going, God, look, I don't even know what I meant. So, but, but you're, you wrote the book on China's Great Wall of Debt. So, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll save that answer for another day, maybe. And, uh, anyways, guys, I wanted, I wanted, Bring up the website though, because obviously, if anybody needs you on their podcast or want to get in touch with you, uh, social media they recommend for them to follow and the website. Please uh, share it with our guests. Uh, yeah, so the the outfit that I work for these days is called Trivium China. The, the website is just uh, triviumchina.com. www.triviumchina.com. Good deal. In social media, you're a journalist. I'm assuming you're all over X. Please tell me you're on X. Oh look, I haven't been a journalist, uh, you know, a, a journalist for a while now. So I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've got a Twitter handle, but I haven't used it in a long time. So uh, Twitter, oh, that, see, there you go. When you're calling it Twitter, I know you haven't used it for a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a while. So, Diddy, I, I have to I say, every now and again, but uh, uh, it's not my thing anymore. Gotcha. I have to say, you are definitely the most well-educated when it comes to the the workings of China. Uh, I'm fascinated with that culture, how they do things. Um, obviously, they have a work ethic. They have a, a respect from generation to generation. Um, they have certain things that uh, America doesn't have. And I'm assuming you see the contrast. It's almost like two different worlds. And I believe wherever we're at, we always see two different worlds. And and uh, it's sort of like Plato's allegory of the cave. Once you kind of see something, it's you can't unsee it. And uh, I bet you were able to do that while you're over there. So anyways, Denny McMahon, it's been an honor to have you here, sir. Oh, look, I, this has been fantastic, Mike. I really appreciate you reaching out. Well, thanks for your time. And guys, remember, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life. Right on.